Ministry for me has often involved uh, sitting and waiting with people, waiting with people in hospital rooms or in waiting rooms in the hospital or in doctor's offices, waiting in courtrooms, waiting in funeral homes, waiting in jails and prisons, waiting by the bedside of sick and dying people, waiting with people in all sorts of dire circumstances. And I've learned both from God's word first and from my experiences as well that these are places where God is present. Not that he isn't present everywhere. God is omnipresent. He fills the universe. God is everywhere. Uh, But when times are tough and trials are fierce and waiting is excruciating, God shows up in these places in in a special way. He, He makes his presence known. He makes his presence felt because God cares for people. God loves people. That's why he shows up. And people in these circumstances have often opened their hearts to God. And so they're aware of his presence in these times and places. Uh, They open their hearts to him and they seek him. Folks going through trials often seek God's help. They talk to him. They, They seek him. They ask him for help. And he responds. He responds. In our text today, which is Luke chapter 7, we're going to see people going through all sorts of different circumstances, most of them going through trials and in need, and these different folks encountering Jesus. And I think there is quite a bit that we can learn here. I'm going to begin reading in Luke 7 and verse 1. I'm I'm reading from New Living Translation this morning, Luke chapter 7 and verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, he returned to Capernaum. At that time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. So they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said, for he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. So Jesus went with them. But just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I'm under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen such faith like this in all Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. So in this first narrative, Jesus heals the servant of a a Roman military officer. And this military officer believes in Jesus so strongly, he doesn't even need to see Jesus deliver the goods. He doesn't need to see the healing. He's so humble, he knows he's unworthy to have Jesus darken the door of his home. So he sends Jesus this message, Lord, I know I'm unworthy to meet you, but you just say the word, I know my servant will be healed. 
and Jesus responds to this faith. He heals a servant, and Jesus declares, I haven't seen faith like this even in Israel among God's people. So here we have this Gentile outsider who demonstrates such strong and amazing faith. Have I mentioned that Luke's gospel is, the God, is focused on outsiders, people who are on the outside looking in, like this Gentile? Now verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain, and a large crowd followed him. A funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. Then he walked over to the coffin and touched it, and the bearers stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. Then the young boy sat up and began to talk. Jesus gave him back to his mother. Great fear swept the crowd, and they praised God, saying, A mighty prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people today. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. So now we have the story of Jesus encountering a funeral procession, and there's something crucial that we don't see in this story. There is no indication at all about the bereaved woman's faith. And this is unusual. Typically in the Gospels, Jesus works most powerfully in response to faith, right? You can read that in the Gospels. But here, there's no such pronouncement. Go in peace. Your faith has made your son well. Nothing like that is said at all. Here's what we do know. There's a woman who had lost her husband. She's a widow, and now she's lost her son. It's fair to say this woman knew heartache. My dad lost his two brothers, two, his two remaining brothers in the space of a month. I don't remember. <clears throat> I don't remember ever seeing my dad cry until then. But that broke him. Some, <clears throat> sometimes the losses mount in life. When they're multiple, they pile up. We know that when Jesus saw this widow, his heart overflowed with compassion because that's what God's word says. His heart overflowed with compassion. Then Jesus touched the son's coffin. He spoke and power flowed and her son was raised and he gave the widow back her son. Verse 18. The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. So John called for two of, his, two of his disciples, and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, uh, John the Baptist sent us to ask, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, 
lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor, and tell them, God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. And John's disciples, after John's disciples left, Jesus began talking to him, uh, talking about him to the crowds. What kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed, swayed by every breath of wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No. People who wear beautiful clothes and live in luxury are found in palaces. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes, and he is more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. I tell you, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. When they heard this, all the people, even the tax collectors, agreed that God's way was right. For they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in religious law rejected God's plan for them, for they had refused God, John's baptism. To what can I compare the people of this generation, Jesus asked. How can I describe them? They are like children playing a game in the public square. They complained to their friends, we played wedding songs and you didn't dance. So we played funeral songs and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist didn't spend his time eating and drinking wine, and, and you say, well, he's possessed by a demon. The Son of Man, on the other hand, uh, feasts and drinks, and you say, well, he's a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. In this narrative, which is one of my uh, favorite from Jesus' life, we have John the Baptist, the great powerful, courageous prophet who is imprisoned for speaking the truth to power, which is always a dangerous enterprise, isn't it? John was doing time, which meant he had nothing but time on his hands, and his mind started spinning. John, who had been absolutely sure of what he believed, is now plagued by doubts. Can you imagine such a thing? We always think of John the Baptist as courageous and not doubting, right? Because that's that is most of his life, but John, who had spoken so powerfully and assuredly, assuredly about Jesus, John, who had such a great effect on the crowds, now sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus this, are you the one we've been expecting, or should, be, should we be waiting for somebody else? Wow. John knows there's a real chance that his incarceration is going to end in death, and in fact, you know that it did. And he wants to know the surety of what he's risked his life on, um, and he's struggling with his faith. He's wrestling, is Jesus really the one? Have I risked my life, my everything on somebody who is not who he's supposed to be? And again, this is not how we usually see John. I love Jesus' response. It is so kind and compassionate and thoughtful in the highest sense of the word, thoughtful. If Jesus had simply said, tell, the, tell John, yes, I'm the one, would that have really helped him with his doubts? Because anybody could say that, right? Anybody could say, yes, I'm the one. And in fact, lots of people previously had said that. The Bible talks about false messiahs who had come before Jesus. But that's not what Jesus did. Just saying it wouldn't have meant very much. Here's how Jesus actually responds. At that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, 
and evil spirits and restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cured, the deaf hear, dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Jesus offers a powerful demonstration, evidence, proof. We were talking about proof earlier, right? He offers proof uh, to a prophet whose faith is faltering. Tell John actually what you have seen. And Jesus doesn't blast John the Baptist for his weakened faith, for his doubts. I think this is very instructive. And he also does not offer empty words of comfort. He simply reminds John of the truth of what he's been teaching, the bedrock reality of who Jesus is, confirmed with powerful signs, wonders, and miracles. So in our three stories so far, we see Jesus responding with deep compassion to three people in very different places. One Gentile military officer who demonstrates very great faith. One widow who has given no indication of faith at all. And a prophet who is greatly struggling with his faith. One final story, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with them, so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. Uh, She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who has forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In this last story, Jesus has gone to the home of a Pharisee to have dinner. And a woman who has a very immoral reputation crashes the dinner party. What do you suppose she had done to have a very immoral reputation? She didn't have a bad reputation because she cheated on her taxes. The text is almost certainly referring to an immoral relationship reputation sexually, a wanton woman. The woman has heard about Jesus, sin of his compassion and mercy for sinners. 
She brings a beautiful jar of very expensive perfume, and she kneels weeping at Jesus' feet. She wets his feet with her tears. She kisses his feet. She pours this very costly perfume on them. She dries his feet with her hair. Now, we are separated by, we're a different culture, and we're separated by 2,000 years. It's very hard for us to get the, completely the implications of this, but this act of a woman letting her hair down in public in that culture would have been absolutely shocking. Shocking. Some Bible scholars have suggested that a modern-day counterpart would be to compare this to a woman at a fancy dinner party today going topless that level of shock. Imagine the shock and embarrassment of the people at dinner. People don't know quite what to say. Uh, the host, Simon, the super religious type Pharisee, says to himself, well, I guess all the questions about Jesus have been answered now. If he were, a true, if he were truly a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. So in response to this Pharisee's thoughts, Jesus tells this wonderful story about two people who have different sized financial debts and they're both forgiven. And his story makes this basic point. Simon the host thought of himself as a person who had a few very small sins. I don't believe he was right, but that's how he thought of himself. And he wasn't grateful at all for the forgiveness he thought he had received from God. But the woman knew she was a big-time sinner, and her gratitude was on display for everybody to see. The expensive perfume, the tears spilling on Jesus' feet, the kisses of his feet, the, the tears dried with her hair, the love, the devotion, the gratitude, which resulted in a complete lack of inhibition, a lack of care for what everybody thought. This is a great story, and Jesus' point still holds true today. People who don't realize they're big-time sinners tend to be self-righteous rather than grateful. So this uber-religious guy, Simon, gets a much-needed rebuke, and the woman with the horrible reputation is left with these words, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I think we can learn a lot from these stories individually, but I think it's also helpful to look at them together because that's how they are in Luke's gospel, right? These stories are all together. And in these stories, we see Jesus' love and compassion for people in very different places spiritually. Two people demonstrate faith, a Gentile military commander and a woman with a horrible reputation, both outsiders. One widow, uh, nothing at all is said about her faith, the widow whose son was raised, and one man in prison who is plagued by doubts. He's struggling greatly with his faith, Here's the bottom line. Jesus loves them all. He has compassion on them all. He reaches out to all of them. He shows them incredible mercy. He helps them. He serves them in love. Jesus loved every one. And I think we're, we're supposed to pay attention to this. We need to learn something from the way that Jesus treated people who are in very different places in terms of their faith, don't you think? We're supposed to pay attention to Jesus' example. And in, in, in illustrating this, I want to read you something that besides the Bible is one of my, the fa my favorite things I've ever read. I'll tell you who wrote this in a minute. You ready? Once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump, I said, don't do it. He said, but nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? Yes. Are you a Christian or a Jew? He says, I'm a Christian. I, I said, me too. 
What franchise? Baptist, he said. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him off the bridge. Now, that, that comes from the comedic genius, which is Emo Phillips. Incidentally, that joke won some kind of contest for best joke ever. But you know what our reputation is as Christians, right? Christians have a reputation for not always being charitable toward those who don't agree with us on everything. Of course, that reputation is completely unwarranted. Or is it? Uh, Christians are pretty much always charitable toward those who don't agree with us on everything. I can hardly even finish that sentence because you know it's not true. Dave Kinneman, president of Barna Research Group, uh, wrote this. It's titled, The Church Feels Unfriendly to Those Who Doubt. Young adults with Christian experience say the church is not a place that allows them to express doubts. They do not feel safe admitting that sometimes Christianity doesn't make sense. In addition, many feel that the church's response to doubt is trivial. Some of the perceptions in this regard include uh, not being able, quote, to ask my most pressing life questions in church. 36% said they were not able to ask those questions. And having, quote, significant intellectual doubts about my faith, 23%. Three out of ten young adults said churches are afraid of the beliefs of other faith. One-fifth of young adults with a Christian background said church is like a country club, only for insiders. Churches, and especially Bible-believing evangelical churches, are often not friendly places to people who don't toe the, toe the party line in, t in everything in terms of their beliefs. Not only less than friendly toward disagreement, intolerant of people with whom we disagree. That's our reputation, even among people who grew up attending church. Here's the thing. Look at Jesus' example. God wants us to love people in all sorts of situations in terms of their faith, because that's what Jesus did. So practically, here's what that means. God wants us to love people who think it's okay to smoke pot. God wants us to love people who have various ideas about gay marriage and abortion. God wants us to love people who've had abortions and people who may have piercings and tats, people who are atheists and agnostics, people who are secular, people who like different kinds of music, even weird music, people who think uh, it's fine to go to bars all the time and drink, people who think premarital sex is okay, people with Muslim backgrounds, people with Buddhist backgrounds, people who think Christians are nuts, I'm pretty sure that Jesus would love all these types of people. In fact, I'm pretty sure Jesus does 
love all these types of people without letting their backgrounds get in the way. But the church has a reputation for being intolerant of those who don't toe the party line on everything. Jesus had a reputation, and it was even said in our text today, as a friend of sinners. There are a couple of points of application here, and then I'm going to quit. One, we all have struggles in our faith at times. At some point, when something hurts us, when we're disappointed with God, whatever it may be, Almost everybody struggles with their faith, even someone as great as John the Baptist. How does Jesus treat people who are struggling in their faith? All we need to do is look at his example. He's merciful to those who are struggling, and that's good news, especially if you're one of the folks who, during this pandemic, uh, is struggling, know that you have a merciful and compassionate Savior. And the second point of application is this. All sorts of people walk through these doors on Sundays, and God sends us to all sorts of people uh, all through the week. Some of them may be atheists. Some of them agnostics. All of them will disagree with you on something that's important. Many have lives that are very messy. How are we going to receive them and connect with them? Do our differences have to become immediate barriers? I would humbly suggest we need to follow Jesus' example. And this question of how we treat folks, it's not limited to folks who walk through the church doors, although that's part of it. Every day, God sends people our way. We encounter people, people for whom Christ died, people that God wanna, wants us to love, people in various uh, places spiritually, people in all sorts of circumstances and all sorts of messes, people who are different from you in various ways. Do your differences have to become immediate barriers? Can we love these folks without letting our differences get in the way? So I would leave you today with two truly important questions. One, what, if anything, do you believe that God is saying to you through this message today? Two, what are you going to do about it? Let's stand up and encourage each other. Uh, if you have a need you want to share, uh, you can come to the front.